This podcast contains content that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. We try to, to alert you on that situation. You didn't pay attention, so our voices are not really taking it to account. But when you decide that it's important now, you, you are coming back to us, so we don't really want to be, you know, to support you because you, you don't really hear us. Every day, when hundreds civilians are killed in conflict and countless more are harmed. Yet their perspectives are often missing from the stories we tell about war. This is the Civilian Protection Podcast, a monthly podcast produced by Civic and PAX. We often hear about war and conflict, but we rarely hear about the civilians who pay the highest price. The people that don't participate in the fighting, but suffer its impact nonetheless. Nor do we often examine the policies and practices that led to that harm, and how states and security actors can work to prevent civilian harm in the future. I'm Mark Arlosko, military advisor from PAX. And I'm Annie Scheel, senior advisor for U.S. policy and advocacy at Center for Civilians in Conflict, or CIVIC. Both of our organizations work in conflicts around the world to protect civilians caught in war. On this podcast, we bring you the voices of people affected by war, the dangers they face, and what can be done to better protect them because we believe it's time to put them at the center of the discussion. Okay, Mark, we are here today talking about peacekeeping. So let's start from the very beginning. What is peacekeeping and when and how did it start? So the first United Nations peacekeeping mission was authorized in 1948, just three years after the UN was created, when the UN Truce Supervision Organization deployed to a newly created state of Israel, to monitor the armistice agreement between Israel and its Arab neighbors. Since then, more than 70 peacekeeping operations have been deployed across the globe. So give me a sense of what that actually looks like. The P5, the permanent five of the UN Security Council, so the US, UK, France, China, and Russia, they sit down and they say, okay, we need a peacekeeping mission here? Well, first, the country where a mission is going to be has to request it, or at least consent to it. Then, if the Security Council determines that it's the most appropriate step to take, they'll formally authorize it by adopting a resolution. That resolution basically sets the mandate or parameters of the mission, what they're supposed to do, how big the mission will be, where they'll put it, the budget, the basic nuts and bolts. Once all that's worked out, they vote, and the resolution is adopted if at least nine of the 15 members of the Security Council vote yes, and as long as none of the permanent five veto it. What were those early operations doing? Well, in the first 50 years of UN peacekeeping, basically during the Cold War, missions were primarily deployed to address conflict between states, like India and Pakistan. That mostly looked like unarmed observers or lightly armed troops monitoring and reporting on ceasefires and peace agreements, and helping to build confidence between parties to a conflict or a peace agreement. But by the 90s, the kinds of conflicts that peacekeeping operations were being deployed to looked very different. These were increasingly internal state conflicts characterized by humanitarian crises, large state atrocities against civilians, and very fragile peace agreements. So think Bosnia or Rwanda. Right. So peacekeeping missions started to get much bigger and sometimes more dangerous. They were actually negotiating and implementing peace agreements, election monitoring, 
conflict mediation, disarming and demobilizing combatants, and even helping to build the rule of law and security institutions. Most importantly for this podcast, they started protecting civilians through armed and unarmed action. When it comes to protecting civilians, that point about how peacekeeping evolved is really important. Because when we think about effective peacekeeping, I think the key question we need to ask is, are peacekeeping missions responsive and accountable to the people they're supposed to serve, the civilian population? And the problem is that that's not necessarily built into a mission's DNA. Like you described, Mark, peacekeeping evolved out of a very state-centric colonial system. A UN mission only exists because the host government has asked it to come in, and that mandate is decided by states, including the powerful P5. And of course, the host government may not be prioritizing the needs of its people, or it may in fact be the one directly causing harm. So states have typically been the main partner of a peacekeeping mission, not civilian communities. And as a result, communities may not trust the UN mission in their country or feel that their voices are not heard. Exactly. And that is what we want to talk about today. How the UN is trying to move missions away from a state-centered focus and towards centering the needs and voices of communities. They call it the people-centered approach. And so for this episode, we wanted to get a sense of what people-centered really means, what changes the UN is making, and whether those changes are really having an impact and centering the needs of civilians affected by conflict. To do that, we spoke to a few different people who have engaged with peacekeeping missions from various vantage points. Which brings us to our first guest, Jeffrey Lowe Duke in South Sudan. Jeffrey works for the South Sudan Action Network on Small Arms, or SANSA, a network of civil society organizations working to reduce and prevent gun violence in South Sudan. South Sudan is currently home to UNMIS, the UN mission in South Sudan, whose mandate includes the protection of civilians. As part of its work, SANSA collects information about conflict dynamics, and they've tried to work with UNMIS to communicate civilians' protection concerns with mixed success. When cycles of intercommunal violence escalated in Jonglei State in 2019, Jeffrey felt like UNMIS missed the important warnings communities were trying to send. So when large-scale attacks started in 2020, it was too late. Uh, for example, the most recent large-scale attacks, uh, intercommunal violence, took place in last year. Uh, last year in June, that is June 2020, where youth from one community mobilized and uh, uh, allied with uh, youth from another community, and they went and launched attacks on uh, uh, another community. So we have seen from preparations. And we have heard about uh, the mobilization of this, this youth, and they have themselves even uh, said it you know, to civil society and media uh, that, yeah, they are, they are going for revenge for the several attacks in the past uh, that they have suffered in the eyes of everyone. No one was there to protect them, so they're, they're attacking... Uh, it upon themselves to uh, serve themselves justice. And of course, ANMIS also has its share of not responding all this time, therefore creating grievances and uh, the reason for the youth to mobilize and uh, go and launch attacks in a neighboring community. Uh, if the previous attacks were prevented, uh, we might have reduced the drive uh, 
towards this mobilization and uh, revenge attack. So the responsibility to protect the communities who are in danger ultimately resides with the host nation. But the UN responded when things escalated. For example, UNMIS called on youth via the media to stop the violent attacks, and they announced deployments of UN peacekeepers in Zhonglai State. But Jeffrey said it wasn't enough. However, uh, this was not backed by uh, anything more than that, more than the words. So in the end, we saw the attack translate or, or rather progress from warnings into actual gunfire in which hundreds of people lost their lives. In the end, the UN reported that over 1,000 people were killed or injured, at least 686 women and children were abducted, and over 79,000 people were displaced from their homes in repeated cycles of violence between January and August 2020. The, the problem of uh, enemies receiving uh, early warning and uh, not doing much in terms of early response uh, is undermining the so-called uh, people-centered uh, protection. What gives a whole meaning to people-centered protection is being able to understand the protection needs of citizens and then uh, creating deliberate plans and policies to respond to these uh, threats. And then finally, successfully uh, executing this plan to prevent and or uh, put an end to attacks against civilians and other addressing other protection-related needs. I would urge for uh, real rethinking uh, the early response bit when we're talking about um, people-centered protection. Like, knowing and doing nothing uh, doesn't cut it. Uh, while we collect information about uh, the fears and uh, protection challenges of communities, uh, we have to uh, be able to also consider deeply uh, the resources needed uh, to respond and uh, address some of the you know, challenges that might be domestic. So really, Jeffrey is describing not only a failure to listen to the concerns of civilian communities, but also a failure to actually act on the information they do receive or to be clear about what a mission can achieve with the resources they have, which really breaks down trust between communities and the mission. When communities see that they are hurt and protected, we see a virtuous cycle of early warning and response. But when that cycle breaks down, not only are civilians less likely to share information because they're not seeing results, but they may also take justice into their own hands, fueling a continuous cycle of violence and revenge. And of course, the host nation also plays a role here in how it perpetuates harm and impunity. So in the context of intercommunal violence, uh, there's almost absolutely nothing that is done uh, in terms of finding those who are responsible for the attacks and then holding them to account. Well, the, uh, we can say that that is the job of the government. Anmis is not here as a judiciary to hold uh, perpetrators of violence to, to account. But sadly, what drives uh, the cycle of revenge attacks is this inadequate response to uh, uh, in the aftermath of uh, incidences that, that has caused civilian harm. So in the end, the civilians go and seek justice for themselves. So uh, 
it, it makes little sense to be just uh, chasing the, 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 the manifestations and ignoring what, what is fundamental uh, in driving uh, the, the cycle of uh, attacks, which form a very uh, big deal in terms of uh, protection needs in South Sudan. Okay, so the problem seems really clear here. You have hundreds of people caught in this cycle of violence with communities and organizations trying to send out warning signs and UNMIS, a UN mission that is mandated to protect civilians, but in a manner primarily decided by states, including the South Sudan government, and so is falling short when it comes to protection. But that sounds like a really hard problem. And so what I'm still having trouble understanding is what tools UNMIS and other missions actually do have to respond and prevent harm without adding to the cycle of violence themselves or further perpetuating the system where the international community is coming in and establishing top-down security. In other words, what does good actually look like? So we wanted to hear how the UN is dealing with protecting civilians while being more responsive to local concerns. So I spoke with Marco Donati at UN headquarters here in New York. He works in the Department of Peace Operations on policy and best practices, and he has a lot of field experience working on the ground in UN peacekeeping missions. Right off the bat, he was pretty clear about the limitations of peacekeeping. If you want to make an analogy to some extent, is that peacekeepers are a little bit like the paramedics. They intervene when it's, you know, and, and try to stabilize a situation, but we're not necessarily the surgeons. We're not, you know, the, the specialists and, and therefore solutions, once again, need to rely on local political will to find them, but also on other actors that can help with, you know, development aspects, early recovery and so on and so forth. You're going in like a medic. You're trying to stabilize the situation. So why did the UN feel it necessary to implement this people-centered approach? How does a people-centered approach assist in creating some kind of a a situation for peacekeepers to go in and and, and put a Band-Aid on on a bleeding country, basically? You really need to interact with the people that are hurt. Uh, You need to understand why they're hurting, where where it hurts. Um, even if you, know, you, you don't have all the tools or the expertise to understand how to address that specific problem. In that regard, uh, you know, the people-centered approach, which on the one hand has always been enshrined in the UN Charter, uh, we the people and so on, but we also know very well that the UN is a state-centric organization, it's member states-driven. So there is a tension uh, that I think you know, we, we keep grappling with. Um, and, and it's really about how do you better understand the problems uh, that the communities, the population, the, the, the different groups are experiencing and become a medium to you know interpret them politically with what is usually the main counterpart of a peacekeeping mission, which is the host government. And the host government may represent a faction in the conflict or may not necessarily uh, be able to overcome the conflict dynamics in the country. So we, by mandate, are asked to work primarily with the host government. And there is, you know, one of the three key principles of peacekeeping is consent. 
and consent of the parties, which in this case means very much the consent of the host government. So there is a tension there in saying that we work with the host government and then we want to work with the people of that country. Let's get specific. Uh, let's talk about some specific examples, missions, if, if you can. What are some ways that different missions have implemented the people-centered approach in practice? What works? What doesn't work? And how does the UN then adapt? Yeah, I would take the example, for instance, of uh, DRC, where the mission, which was called before MONUC and now is called MONUSCO, has spearheaded a lot of these people-centered approaches. One that I would I think was first established in 2009 as what we call the Community Liaison Assistance. These Community Liaison Assistance, or CLAs, that Mark was describing are national staff and are embedded with peacekeeping units and serve as intermediaries between the mission and communities. And as Marco described, they can play an essential role in helping to set up a people-centered protection mechanism. A lot of people think, oh, protection of civilians is all about saving somebody who has got a gun at its head. But it, it goes far beyond that. It's, it's really about preventing that situation from happening and also finding ways of addressing it in a more permanent solution. And going back to the local solutions, that usually means engaging with the communities and, and, and finding ways of them becoming the main actor uh, that is behind the solution. And so the CLAs engage constantly and regularly with these communities and have also been, therefore, critical in working with them to create local protection committees that are essentially, you know, individuals from a community that sort of take the responsibility to help the mission, but also, you know, depending on the situation, the host government identify the threats, the origin of the threats, and develop protection plans and things like that, that really it's a collaboration, if you want, between the community and the mission. And more specifically, and that's, again, an example that comes from uh, DRC, what we call the community alert networks. Uh, I remember when it started, I was still in, in DRC, it was really about having you know, giving phones to 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 some of these local committees uh, with a SIM card and some credit, so that they could call in case the you know there was a threat to the community. Uh, so it's really a hotline, and I, I, that's the way it's been evolving. You know, and so missions would get through the CLAs would get alerts. Um, now the thing. I think, you know, it, it's all about the sustainability of this mechanism. So how do you ensure, A, that uh, you have an early warning mechanism, but then there is also an early response, which I think it's the part that's not always as smooth as we would want to. We could do a whole episode about early warning networks, so I won't take too much time here, but this really gets at what Jeffrey was talking about, that it's one thing to take information from communities and another thing to use that information to actually deliver real, responsive protection. Exactly. And Marco did note that there are cases where civil society doesn't want to engage with the UN mission, and sometimes for that reason. Also, in broader engagement with civil society by the mission, Marco explains that part of the problem lies in the bureaucracy itself and the way it filters the information the UN receives from communities. You start with the local community liaison assistant that is talking to the community, then he writes a report, it goes up, and then it... So feeding this information up the chain 
brings inevitably a lot of distortion, but it, it also drops a lot of the specificities of what the interlocutors were trying to express. And you get to a more, let's say, packaged kind of message. So what I'm saying, I think, is that there is a loss of information that is already built in our internal communication systems. There's the two issues. One is the you know, loss in translation as the communication moves from the field to HQ and then gets presented in a way that maybe it's not, you know, faithfully representing the, the, the concerns of the civil society. But there is also how do you improve opportunities to engage directly with uh, mission uh, leadership? Because I think that's where, uh, you know, some of these messages have a higher chances of then being relayed more faithfully to government counterparts. It sounds like it should be so simple. Just listen to the people you're trying to protect. Right? But the UN system wasn't built that way. In fact, according to the UN website, nearly one-third of the world's population was living under colonial rule when the UN was founded in 1945. That legacy and where power was distributed at the time impacts how the UN was built. And the same goes for the rest of the international community, including international organizations like ours. So the people-centered approach isn't a given. We have to work every day to make sure we're centering civilian voices and getting it right. Which brings us to our third and final guest for today, who has seen firsthand the challenges of translating the UN's people-centered ambitions into reality. My name is Kessie Martine Komoswanye. I'm from the Central African Republic, and uh, I run a youth-led organization called URU, which means takeoff, and which aims to support and develop the youth co- um, contribution to peace building in Central African Republic. Since its independence in 1960, the Central African Republic, also known by its acronym CAR, has experienced repeated cycles of violence. In 2013, a coup precipitated a civil war fought largely along ethnic and religious divides, manipulated by political actors and elites. In 2014, the UN deployed a peacekeeping mission to CAR known as MINUSCA, whose mandate prioritized the protection of civilians. More recently, since late 2020, a new armed rebellion has plunged the country into a deeper protection crisis, with numerous allegations of atrocities against civilians by both sides of the conflict. Cassie began her involvement in peacebuilding work in response to international narratives around CAR, which didn't match how she saw her own country. I decided to work on youth peace and security because one of the main reasons actually is that I was, I was questioning why the perception or the, or the understanding that I have from my country was so different of uh, what uh, I can read in, uh, in newspaper uh, or in analysis or at the new, uh, on news on TV. The narrative on car is really bad, actually. It's like, it's as if there was no hope for this country. It's as if uh, all the people living in the country are kind of victims. At some point, it's true, but I, for me, it was like it was important to also try to create a balance in the narrative on car. So I decided to come back and to see how I can help to make more young people more visible in, uh, you know, in their work to help them also to do more, but also to be more vocal at the local, national and global uh, levels. Cassie also described seeing a disconnect between the idea of the people-centered approach and its actual implementation in practice. 
for me, when I heard about it and I uh, discovered that uh, the UNHQ is working really and taking it kind of seriously in the work that they do um, around the world, for me it was uh, wow. Okay, now as civil society, as young as young person, we have the opportunity now to be part of the discussion. But we will be able also uh, to drive a bit the change uh, in our countries, and this is what i understood at the beginning but then when i went to the hq i realized that yeah it's a concept this concept uh, when it's in new york it's completely out of the reality of what we live here here's how kessie described the ideal people-centered approach the first thing is that we have to create space people central approach is creating space for people to speak the second thing is like we have to acknowledge the fact that we don't know everything and that we have a lot to learn from those people. We do not have a lot to teach to them, but they have a lot to teach to us. And this is accepting that, even though they are vulnerables, even though they are in difficult situation or whatever they are, just accepting that we have to learn from them. And the third thing, actually, rather than to say two, but the third thing is that we have to use what they said to us and we have to go back to them and to say, this is how we work on what you said. It's all about partnership with communities in a kind of equality in the way we deal with each other. When Cassie talks about the people-centered approach, what she's talking about is the need for more humility and equality in how the international community engages. And she explained that in many cases, a state-centric, top-down approach is so built into missions DNA that they often don't even have the flexibility that's needed to genuinely listen to communities and change course based on their feedback. She gave an example that's really illustrative of that, where communities in CAR warned MINUSCA, the UN mission, about a possible crisis regarding transhumans' conflicts, which are conflicts related to tensions between farmers and herders. When I talk with communities, one of the main things that they wave is we advise you to really, you know, try to focus on that, try to understand what is going on, because we think that it's another kind of, uh, of conflict that we are facing. It can create like another round of conflict in the country. I would not say that they didn't care about it, but there was more, okay, it's not part of the mandate for now. It's not, uh, we just can work on it now. For me, it's that lack of flexibility. Uh, that is it's causing a problem and now uh, that things are getting worse then now it's becoming a kind of um, a key element of work for the UN mission in the you know the area touched by that uh, by that uh, those tra- tra- trans conflict and the population told me that so now because they decide that it was important then now they decide to put it uh, as an element of uh, you know of work like a, a key element uh, of work for them and so it that kind of mistrust that is, you know, it's creating a kind of mistrust between the mission and the community. It's like we try to, to alert you on that situation. You didn't pay attention. And then a few months later, they call you to ask you more on what you say, like months ago. So our voices are not really taking it to account. But when you decide that it's important now, you are coming back to us. So we don't really want to be, you know, to support you because you don't take time to listen to us. And then sometimes civil society can be seen as too critical and risk losing access altogether. It's happened that uh, when you are too critical, sometimes you realize that you are not invited anymore in meetings. (laughs) So uh, 
I don't. It depends. I think it depends also of the people in the room, and also on the way the system is trying to to you know to build their agenda or their narrative. So for yeah, it can happen that you are kind of banned for a moment. So yeah, you do not have access to to, to some spaces as a UN meeting and and other. It can happen time to time in car. You have to find a way to to say what you have to say in a kind of diplomatic way. So yeah, it's a huge it's a huge game to play. Cassie and the peace builders she works with have all this information that is really valuable to understanding the conflict, protecting communities, and building a sustainable peace that actually serves people. But they're not always being listened to. And they're not always being centered in narratives around CAR and the conflict. So she founded another organization to fill that gap. It's called Peace and Development Watch. And they collect information about community views and needs and work to push that to the mission and international NGOs. We ask questions to the population on what they think about different topics and even, for instance, like the, the role of the UN mission, the role of international NGOs. Uh, we also ask them mainly uh, a lot about like resilience, how they see resilience in car, how they see resilience in their life, in their daily life, uh, how it can be, you know, uh, tangible. And based on that now, we, we advise uh, partners and, and, and donors on, um, on how they can rethink the action in car it's not all about a uh, conflict you know when you talk about peace building in car it's not just all about conflict and this is one of the problems that we have of civil society is to see that the narrative that is um bring on the table uh abroad like at a global level is mainly focused on you know on the conflict uh narrative and i think we can try to find the balance between that uh, between the the resilience part and the conflict part this is where um i think there's a um, there's a problem actually in terms of like um uh working on the narrative and uh using the space that have been created by the un or by the international community and it's really like pushing people like uh, even government to think out of the box because for my experience working with communities people are just tired of like emergency um, people are really thinking about like resilience but there's no space for that you do not have a lot of donor working on that most of the international ngos here are working on kind of emergency dynamic so it's not for, it's really a short-term approach of things i have data i did analysis on it but I don't think that international community is really ready to listen to that, <laughs> you know? So it's challenging. That last point feels really important because she's not just saying that the UN isn't ready or that the state isn't ready. She's also talking about international NGOs, just like Civic and PACS, and the space that we take up in national and global conversations about CAR. The UN is creating space. Um, for civil society, for the national civil society. And we can see it like, um, as I said, they, we invite to around the table and other, but the reality is that it's at the national level, but at the global level, there's more space and there's more channels for international organization, which are the one like really talking for us, speaking for us. It's not a bad thing at some point, but I think that, um, Depending of the agenda, sometimes it's not 
what we think or it's not or the way the way they they they, they, they know the share the narrative is is i mean it missed a lot of things I think my biggest takeaway is that the people-centered approach sounds really simple. Listen to communities, to those most affected by the conflict. But there's a difference between rhetoric and implementation. And really implementing the people-centered approach in UN peacekeeping is very complex. I mean, it spans the state-centric foundations of the UN and its peacekeeping missions through to the challenges of actually delivering on protection when you do listen to communities. So one thing that's clear is the UN has a lot of work to do there. And of course, Cassie's point that our whole field of international NGOs suffers from this challenge is really important to sit with. Even when it's part of our mission, we also have to continuously work to actually center the voices of people affected by conflict rather than take up more space ourselves. So that's also something I know we'll continue to reflect on, and I hope our listeners in this sector do as well. That was it for this episode. Next time on the Civilian Protection Podcast, we'll turn to the U.S. and NATO withdrawal from Afghanistan. How will the U.S. and its partners reckon with a legacy of civilian harm, and what does this mean for the future? The Civilian Protection Podcast is brought to you by Center for Civilians in Conflict and PACS two NGOs working to improve the lives of civilians caught in conflict. Today's episode was written by Mark Arlasco, Annie Scheel, Selma Von Oshvard, Hans Rao, and Ari Tolani. It was produced by the Podcast Guru. Monica Zura made the designs and made sure we're online. We'd like to thank Kessie Martine Ocomo Soigne, Jeffrey Loduke, and Marco Donati for joining us as guests. You can find us on Spotify or anywhere you get your podcasts. We want to hear from you. Share your thoughts on this episode or topics you'd like us to cover by emailing civilianprotectionpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at protectionpod to stay up to date on our episodes and guest speakers and get behind the scenes content. You can follow Kessie Martine Comosoignier and her work with Uru and the Peace Development Watch on social media at ECOCAS. Follow Jeffrey LeDuc and his work for the South Sudan Action Network on Small Arms at Duke Jeffrey. Find relevant reports and upcoming episodes on our websites, civiliansinconflict.org slash podcast and protectionofcivilians.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>